All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We are continuing tonight our study of the Paitanim, or the era of the Piyutim, in the realm of Jewish liturgy. We have come pretty far in our quest to conquer all the Paitanim of history. Uh, so far, we've ended the last two shiurim we discussed with Elazar Berbi Kalir, specifically last week looking at the legacy of Rabbi Elazar Berbi Kalir and all of those who were influenced by him and a little bit uh, into the style of the Kedushta. We didn't go very deep into the style of the Kedushta. It would have been a little bit out of scope to, to go into it too deeply. But tonight, I want to continue, uh, instead of moving through the, the Paitanim or the Piyutim, Piyut by Piyut, or moving through it simply by era, I chose to go through the Paitanim personality by personality and to learn Piyut not uh, systematically, but rather through the stories and through the people and to really get a grip of who these people were in order so that, and their, and their histories, in order so that we could come to maybe a better historical understanding of the Pio team, even if, they don't, even if they don't affect our life directly today, because many people will not say Pio team, but it would be important for us to understand the, the influence that all these Paitanim had on the Jewish legacy, especially on liturgy as a whole. So typically, historians, when they discuss the era of the Pew team, they like to periodize the various, um, the various eras of Pew. And, and typically, historians will periodize in order to better communicate and better discuss and better, better compare relative times to other relative times. In the world of Piyut, scholars like to, to divide the different eras of Piyut into five or six different eras, at minimum, maybe even like seven. The first era, which they consider to be a period, would be the pre-classical period, and that is the era of Piyut, which began in early Eretz Yisrael, in the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. And a lot of that poetic um, productivity included poetry that was less sophisticated than the poems which came to evolve later. And these types of poetry usually lacked rhyme. They usually used only acrostics, which were alphabetics. They typically didn't have name acrostics. And very often they were more like prose than like proper poetry. An excellent example of this would be Yossi Berabiosi. He's the only one of that era who we know by name, and he famously wrote the one of the Sidre HaAvodah for Yom Kippur, which is no longer used today. The next period, which we have just finished looking at, is called the Classical Period. That period is sometimes referred to as the, the period of the Kedushta, the, the period of where the so-called Kedushta type of Krova was was developed and perfected. And that was the perfected by Yanai and Abelazar Berbi Kalir. And for all those who are who are uh, what's the word new to this class, the Kedushta is a form of Krova, which in turn is a form of, of poetic collection written specifically for Shmona Esrei. And the Kedushta was written 
for a Shemona Esrei that would have a Kedusha in it. Now, in the classical period, this was developed to the, to the extreme, and many of the those who were influenced by Bilezer Rebbe Kalir developed many more Kedushtaot, some Shivatot, some other types of Korot as well, but primarily the form of Piyut that was developed in the classical period was the Kedushta. The next, and this was probably between the 6th and the 8th century, even a bit into the 9th century, we have some development, but roughly between the 6th and 8th centuries are the greatest, um, are, are the greatest period for the Kedushta and for, and for Krova type Piyutim and collections of Piyut, and this is known as the classical period. The next period, beginning through the, well, spreading through the 8th and 9th centuries, is what's called the Late Oriental Period. This represents a gradual move away from Eretz Yisrael. Originally, the Piyut was born in Eretz Yisrael, but as time moved on and more Jews began to leave Eretz Yisrael, we find a gradual move to the poets living in Egypt, poets living in Bavel, and furthermore, we find more experimentation with Piyutim that are not uh, completely Krovot, which are not completely a Kedushta such as uh, Shivata or as a Yotzer. We find a lot of development into the Yotzrot and we find more artificial styles, more developments of styles. We find more Azharot, we find Tochachot, uh, Slichot, many, many more types of Piyut were, had begun to get worked on in the late Oriental period, in the period away from Eretz Yisrael, more towards Egypt, more towards Bavel, and eventually, finally, towards Italy, which is the beginning of the Italian period. So next week, we'll, God willing, start with either the end of the late Oriental period, or we're going to get into the, um, the Italian and the, and the Franco-German periods, which are even a little bit later. Now, it's not clear why in the classical period there was an obsession with Kedushta Ot, and in the late Oriental period, there was an obsession with Yotzrot. The Yotzrot are a form of piyut which embellishes the Kriyat Shema in the morning, or more precisely, the Brachot of Kriyat Shema in the morning. I've never seen any scholar give a very convincing reason for why the late Oriental poets became so obsessed with the Yotzer. I, I remember seeing Robert Brody uh, Yerachmiel Brody, for those who are familiar with his with his uh, with his farm, he suggests that that perhaps in the by the time of the late Oriental Paitanim, by their time the Kedushtaot or the, the earlier Piyutim had already become so canon and so like Kodesh that they were already finalized. Everybody said these ones already. They were they were already a canonical set of Piyutim, and therefore the they began to look for other areas where they could innovate and where they could lend their own poetic hand. It, it seems that some, if not very few, uh, poets in the classical era did dabble with this type of piyut called the Yotzer. However, it wasn't fully developed and embellished and created until the late Oriental period, the era of the Yotzerot, or the, another way of saying it is the late Oriental period. Now, what is a Yotzer? So I just want to, before we move any further, we have to really understand what a Yotzer is. So there's roughly seven or eight parts to a Yotzer. First, you'd have a typical Yotzer or for, let's say, for Shabbat. 
So after Yotzer Or Boreichoshech Oseh Shalom Uveyat HaKol, in a, in, in a, in a Yotzer called, the, you know, the, the Putim called Yotzerus, there were, I think, what was seven parts? At least, yeah, at least seven parts. So a, a, a Yotzer, just like a Kreva, is not one Piyot, it's not one poem, it's many Piyotim. And so the first part would be a Piyot after the words, Yotzer Or Boreichoshech Oseh Shalom Uveyat HaKol. That part was called the Yotzer. Some people call it the Guf HaYotzer. The next part was the Ofan. This is a piyut called, which, goes, which is placed between the Kadosh, the, the words Kadosh Kadosh, and Baruch Kavod Hashem Mikomo. The next type of piyut, which is there, the third part of the Yotzer, is called a Mi'orah. And this is said before you close Yotzer HaMe'orot. Next you have a piyut called Ahava, which is put into the Ava Rabbah or Avat Olam Bracha in, in, the, in, in, the, in that uh, Bracha in Shmones, in Kriyat Shema. Fin- finally, after the Kriyat Shema text, when everybody reads that, you have the Zulat, which is after the words, En Elohim Zulatecha. You have a piyut after the words, Mikamocha. So they called this piyut the Mikamocha piyut. And finally, a piyut called the Geula, right before the words, Baruch Atah Hashem Ga'al Yisrael. So at minimum, a seven-part uh, a seven-part collection of poem made up what we would call the Yotzrot. Ironically, today, especially among many Ashkenaz Kihilais, they will not completely say a Yotzer. When they think they're saying Yotzeros and they're adding things into the, into the Yotzer today, very often they won't say the entire seven parts. They will only say a Zulas, or they'll say an Ofan, or they'll say a Yotzer. But it's incredibly rare to find anybody saying the entire Yotzeros uh, selection as they originally were prepared. Today, people, today the Sidurim don't clearly represent the way the Yotzrot were originally written or performed. And to add to the to the complexity, sometimes some Kiyilot will, will include an Ofan from one writer and a Me'orah from another writer, a Mikamocha from yet another writer, and sometimes these Piyotim that were written for one thing were uh, borrowed and used for a completely other thing. This just adds to the complexity of tracing the history of Yotzrot, but it is a well-studied field, and I think the greatest work on, on Yotzrot was written by Ezra Fleischer. He, write, he has a very thick book on the history of the Yotzrot, and we're going to have to reference that as we go along this history. Now, the first of the writers, the first of the Paitanim, that I want to discuss is the poet of tonight's class, which would be Rav Yagaon. And in order to understand of Sadia Gaon, who he was, and what kind of poet he was, it's important to understand a little bit about the Gaonic era. So my apologies to anybody who's already familiar with this kind of history. However, it takes some recap, and it will take some history to get a, a, a stronger grip on who this person was. So after the redaction, well, the soft redaction, of the Talmud Bavli, of the Babylonian Talmud, was an era of, of learning in Bavel, or in what we call Babylonia, which extended in the main yeshivot for many, many hundreds of years. You see, after the Churban Bayit, after the first, after, sorry, after the second destruction, there were two schools of Jewish people. There were Jewish people who heralded their, their they took their heritage of Minhagim and Halachot from Eretz Yisrael, which followed the, the Talmud Yerushalmi and all the yeshivot in Eretz Yisrael. And those Jews lived either in Eretz Yisrael or in places like North Africa, especially in Egypt. And we also had schools of Jews, the majority, 
who took their heritage of halacha from Bavel and from the Talmud Habavli. Now, most of them lived in Bavel, Iraq, uh, what we would call today a modern-day Iraq, as well as uh, Karawan, which is in Tunisia today. And these Jews considered their Mesorah to come directly from the Tanaim and Amoraim, beginning with the, yeshiva, the yeshivot of Rav and Shmuel, in, in the cities known as Naharda and Matamahasya, where the yeshivot, which later became known as Sura and Pumpadita. Now, Sura and Pumpadita, these two great yeshivot, were originally founded by Rav and Shmuel, the Talmidim of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, who redacted the Mishnah. And these yeshivot, although originally were actually in those cities between the Tigris and the Euphrates, Sura and Pumpadita, they eventually both moved to Baghdad. And the yeshivot had a very, a very hierarchical structure. Those yeshivot were uh, always led by a, there was a very defined way that the yeshiva was run. So in their society, they typically had a gaon, uh, a rosh yeshiva for each yeshiva, who was the spiritual leader of the Jewish people at the time. In addition, there was somebody called the Resh Galuta, or the Exilarch, who would, who would be the head of the, the political head. Who was, he was also Tamil Chacham, and he would be the political figurehead for the Jewish people, and he held the real, uh, I would say, not real, but the, a lot of the official powers uh, as the Jewish leader, and typically the government would consider him as the official leader and the go-between between the government and the Jewish people. The Rosh Hashiva tending to more directly spiritual matters. Now, the Gaon of every yeshiva was the leader of the yeshiva proper, and he would have, uh, uh, underneath him, he would have people called Resh Kalaz, right? He would have uh, the heads of each row, and these were seven people underneath him who were like ranking underneath him for controlling the rest of the yeshiva. There were seven rows of 10 scholars. These were the top 70 Sanhedrin type students of the yeshiva, and then everybody else was, was uh, not seated. These were the people who, who attended the yeshiva, but they were not the main people in the yeshiva. The, the, the word Gaon actually comes from the, the full title, Rosh Yeshivat Geon Yaakov, the head of the yeshiva Geon Yaakov. For some reason, the, the yeshiva in Bavel was known as Geon Yaakov, the glory of Jacob. We don't know why, perhaps it was the benefactor, perhaps they just chose the name, whatever it was, that was the name of those yeshivot. And these yeshivot, really spread an incredible power. And they, they concentrated their power with knowledge because less, much less Torah Shabbat was written down and the Gemara was always memorized and it was part of their culture to memorize Gemarot and memorize the Pirushim. And this was part of the intense study which they would do in these, yeshiv, in these yeshivot. Now, the era, the early era of the Geonim in Bavel, let's take it all the way to the uh, all the way up to the mid-7th century, that era was really a difficult period among the Jewish people because you had two separate kingdoms, the Byzantine Empire on one side, sorry, well, the Holy Roman Empire on one side, and the, the uh, Persian Empire on the other side. So Eretz Yisrael was controlled by the Holy Roman Empire, sorry, I should say this properly, the Roman or slash Byzantine Empire, and the the Shivot and Bavel were under the Persian, Persian or the Sassanid Empire. And the difficulty this caused was that communication was very, very difficult between these two areas. When the Muslims conquered the vast areas of land in the 600s, then there was a tremendous boon 
for communication between the Jews of Eretz Yisrael and the Jews of Babel. And a lot more dialogue began to occur, not just because travel was easier, but also because the Muslim conquest meant that Arabic was the lingua franca, or the, the, um, you know, the, the default language for everybody to use when they were communicating with people they didn't, um, they didn't speak the same language for, with. Aramaic was used sometimes, but typically Arabic was a very easy way to reach people in, 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 in Babel, in Egypt, in Eretz Yisrael. Arabic became the language of choice for communication. So you had this world where, in the 600s and onwards, where the Yeshivot in Babel really gained a superior uh, following, a superior, uh, what's the word? They had better funding, they had a much larger size, and a much superior influence over the Jewish world in general. The Yeshivot in Eretz Yisrael were still respected, they were a little bit smaller, and they were, had, they were the, uh, you know, Bavel was really where it was at. If you were, if you were a rabbi, you needed to be trained in Bavel. That's, that's basically how you became a respected rabbi in the, in the late antiquity. So, typically, the Gaon of Bavel would be somebody, the, the Rosh Yeshiva would be somebody who usually studied in that Yeshiva. He would be somebody who studied in Bavel, inherited, came from a prestigious family. Perhaps his father, uncle, grandfather was also a, a Resh Kala or a Gaon in the Yeshiva. But there came a point in the late 9th century when a most unusual thing happened, well really the late, uh, the early 10th century, and they appointed a Rosh Yeshiva by the name of, by the name of Rabbi Saadia ben Yosef. Rabbi Saadia ben Yosef was the most unusual appointee as Gaon to the Yeshiva in Surah because he wasn't from Bavel at all. He was born to a simple family in Cairo, in, in the Al-Fayyum district, in roughly the year 882. And I believe the district he was born in was the Dilaz uh, district. And he was raised and taught mostly in Eretz Yisrael. But as early as, 20, as, early as his, his teenage years already, he was seen to be a tremendous prodigy. Some, uh, what's the word, legends, have it that he began writing his first sefer at 11 years old. Well, it's more likely he began that at 21 years old. But he began writing his first uh, sefer ha'agron, like his book, uh, his dictionary that he wrote for poets to find, like a theosaurus, to find the right word that you need. He began writing this very, very young, and he be and he received his own almost discipleship, a his um, disciple circleship. People began to flock to him to learn from him already when he was, he was almost 23 years old. He was really an outstanding, outstanding scholar. And he was very much influenced philosophically and academically by the Arabic uh, styles of, of theology of the Kalam, of the Mutazila, and the inheritance of the Greek. Basically, really, it's a Greek style of philosophy and theology that the Arabs carried forward with them in Arabic. And Sadia Gaon was very much, so much more brilliant than anybody in, 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 his, in his generation that he quickly acquired an immense amount of fame. Specifically, he first he began his career in Eretz Yisrael. He began learning in the Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, uh, in one of the Yeshivot over there. And then later on, he got involved, he, he moved to Bavel to start learning in the Yeshivot in Bavel. And as he got to Bavel, he heard about a certain uh, psak that was written by Aaron ben, Me ben Meir. 
Rabbi Aaron ben Meir was one of the Rosh Hashivot in Eretz Yisrael. And it was a very complicated psaq where Rabbi Aaron said that because of this calculations of Hillel, they have a special tradition that that year the, the, the calendar would end up uh, two days later or two days earlier than it was normally supposed to be. And the, the Rosh Hashivan Bavel had to respond to this. And Sadia Gaon participated in the response and spearheaded the responses sent across the Jewish globe. And his unbelievable erudition and his unbelievable sophistication in leading and, and writing these responses to Rabbi Aaron ben Meir and avoiding a tremendous schism or a tremendous machloket were very much taken note by everybody in Bavel. Now, he was very different than they were. He, he, growing up in Egypt, he was used to different nusha'ot. Having learned the style of the Arabs, he was much more uh, scholastically or academically inclined. He was almost considered by many to be like the, the first Rambam. He was brilliant beyond, beyond brilliant. And it didn't take long for everybody around him to notice that he was a clear... Uh, what's the word, nominee for the next Gaon of Surah. So there was, he had a contemporary in the yeshiva whose name was Rabbi Nisim al-Narwani. And Rabbi Nisim was also one of the front runners to become Gaon. He didn't want to become Gaon, but Rabbi Nisim consulted with the Reish Galuta at the time, Rabbi David ben Zakkai. Rabbi David ben Rabbi Zakkai, who was the Reish Galuta at the time, wanted to elect Rabbi Sadia Gaon as the next Gaon. And Rabbi Nunisim advised him against it. He said, you don't know who you're up against. Rabbi Sadia Gaon is afraid of nobody. He is extremely strong-willed, and he's go going to run this yeshiva with an iron fist. And what Rabbi Nunisim was actually afraid of was that Rabbi David ben Zakkai and Rabbi Sadia Gaon would have a falling out. Indeed, at the time, he, was, he admired him greatly and he wanted him to be the Gaon. However, he had a suspicion that an like a unstoppable force was going to hit an, an immovable object. And this wasn't going to end well. Rabbi Sadia Gaon all his life was a very, very forceful proponent for the causes. In a way, you could almost compare him to, to Samson Rafal Hirsch because he was an ardent defender of true traditional Torah. And he, in his earlier career, he spent a lot of time writing polemics against the Karaim, writing uh, arguments against those who didn't believe in the Torah Shaval Peh. And he really spearheaded a challenge for, the, for traditional Judaism as he, as he saw it. And he, he did this almost in an interesting way. I'm sorry if this is a little tangential, but he, for example, he believed that there were, if Hashem gave the Torah to, to humans who are sikhli, who are intelligent, it must be that the Torah is based on intelligence and that is, it is comprehensible to us. So while the Karaim only saw, the Karaites only saw the Torah Shebechtav and Seichel, the two tools that you could use for determining halacha, he saw three tools, Torah Shebaal the Mesorah, Seichel, and Torah Shebechtav. However, in many of his writings you will find that he uses this incredibly intimidating approach of, 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 um, of, 
of what's it called, sophisticated philosophy that comes along with Torah Shebechtav to prove every halacha. In other words, he wanted all of his writing to be accepted not just by uh, traditional Jews, but also by the Karaim. So when he would argue, he would very often not even bring rayot from the Gemara. He would use his sheer intellectual power to bring proofs from Seichel for many of the uh, of the what's the of of the halachot that he was bringing. For example, we know that he wrote a sidur, and in his sidur he takes the kalam style, the the mutazila style, which is built on a Greek style of writing, where everything is chapter by cha- chapter and systematized. Where you have the tefilat yachid and the different tefilot in tefilat yachid, tefilot shel rabim and the different uh, halachot of tefilot shel rabim, the brachot of this t- category of mitzvot asei, brachot of of uh, reshut, brachot for shmiyah, brachot for riyah. Uh, the, the tefillot for every chag. But let's say he begins his sefer, begins it systematically, and he says, how do we, what is tefillah? How do we know that we have to, how do we know that we have to pray? And he brings proofs from the pesukim along with seichel, along with philosophical proofs for prayer. It's a, it's, it's, he's really a personality to be reckoned with. And so inevitably, what happened was, was that there was a falling out between him and Rabbi David ben Zakkai. And the, the details of this are, are, are many, but he, Basically, there was a will in which Rabbi David ben Zakkai was, was um, there was a din Torah that occurred over a dispute over a will. And Rabbi David ben Zakkai wanted Rabbi Gaon to be the presiding judge over this court case, and Rabbi Gaon said no, and then he forced him to. The, the Gaon of Pumpedita signed, the, and uh, the judges wanted to side with Rabbi David ben Zakkai, but beside everybody trying to make friends with the Beresh Galuta and agreeing with the Beresh Galuta's approach, Sadia Gaon said absolutely not. He sided with the other um, party in the dispute and he ruled against Rabbi David ben Zakkai. This led to a tremendous fight uh, and he was fired from his post. Only two years into being the, 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 the most powerful man in the Jewish world, he was fired from his official post as as Gaon and somebody else was put in his place. However, the entire Jewish world uh, did not cease to, to heed his every word. They understood that it was only a political fight and that he lost his official powers. But Rabbi Sadia Gaon used that time very productively. Between 12 and 20 years where he was technically unemployed, he wrote so, so many works. He wrote, uh, he wrote the Sidur, he wrote the Sefer HaGaron, he, he finished Sefer HaGaron, he wrote this, the famous Sefer HaMonot Vedeot, which is his famous theological, philosophical work of Judaism. He wrote many, many works in Arabic. He wrote polemics against the Karaim. And what the topic for tonight really is that he wrote a lot of poetry during that time. Eventually he was reinstated he was reinstated as the Gaon of Surah. After the death, they, they reconciled him and Rabbi David ben Zakkai. After the death of Rabbi David ben Zakkai, he became the Gaon of Surah again. And shortly, late, and shortly after, a couple years after, he passed away. So Rabbi Saadia Gaon had a tremendous influence both on our Jewish theology as well as the approach to poetry that was taken uh, over the next 300 years from Bavel into uh, what would become modern Spain. At the time, medieval Spain, or however you want to designate the Iberian Peninsula. So, in order to 
There are many, many areas where Sadia Gaon changed Jewish history. And the one that we're going to have to focus on tonight, since this is a shiur on, on the Paitanim and the Piyutim, is really his poetic style. So Rav Sadia Gaon himself began his first work called Sefer HaAgron chiefly because he was frustrated by the poetry of his day. So you have to understand that the, he began that he, he, he believed that the later poets the, the ones that came after the classical period were basically losing originality and they were losing the ability to really be real innovators of Piyut. On the one hand, Rabbi Sadegon was a supporter of the Kellerian and, and the Yanai type Piyutim and he believed that this was real poetry. However, he didn't see the later Paitanim as really contributing anything special. They were just adding a few paragraphs here or there. They were writing, they were using tired uh, approaches, tired rhymes, and they were using languages that he considered to be inappropriate or not pure Lashon HaKodesh. So he began writing a sort of dictionary called Sefer HaAgron to give a theosaurus and to present his ideas of poetic style and to present his opinions on poetry to everybody else. And incidentally, uh, historians consider him the first Jewish author because if you think about it, nobody before him ever wrote a book with a title and signed it as like, this is the book called Sefer This and signed his name, right? Chobo Salavavos Barbenu Bachia or Ziyad HaChazaka to the Rambam. Like those ideas of writing a book with a title and having an author did not exist before Absad Yagon. He is the first real Jewish author of a book. Before that, it was always a collective voice of rabbis like the Shiltot, the Talmud, or the Behag. There, were never, there was never a book written by a specific person. He took upon the Arabic slash Greek style and wrote an official book signed by his authorship with his attribution and his, and his name. So despite all of his work and all of his hard work to innovate in poetry, later scholars of, of poetry speak very critically of his type of poetry. And the reason is because in his time, what was considered to be impressive poetry was going to be academically impressive poetry. So poetry where you could pack as many illusions or as many fancy words or as many riddles into as least words as possible. Or poetry where you could take artificial constraints like uh, beginning every uh, beginning every strophe with, with uh, the word from a, from a different, from let's say you take, uh, you want to begin and end every strophe with specific words from every, from every, uh, uh, from a pasuk in tilim or pasuk in shirashirim, or you want the letters in your poem to equal a certain gematria. When you take these external artificial constraints, your poetry is never going to reach real poetic beauty. It's not going to sound good. It might have rhyme, it might have a real system, and it might be academically very impressive, but is it going to be poetry in the sense that it's beautiful? Mm, not really. And for this reason, a lot of authors after him, a lot of poetic authors after him, might have taken inspiration from some of his styles, but regarding his actual poetic abilities to read something that would inspire you and to write a poem that would inspire the layman, that really never caught on. And probably for this reason, many of the, po the poems of Sadia Gaon did not catch on and were not taken on by the broader uh, Jewish demographic throughout history. 
So we know that he began developing piyutim, which were not touched by the classical period poets, the classical period paitanim. He wrote piyutim called Ma'arivim, which are specific for Arvit, he, which those replaced the brachot of um, Kriyat Shema for Arvit. He wrote Slichot, he wrote Shivatot, which are for the seven brachot, uh, which are specific piyutim, which cover all the seven brachot for, for uh, Yom Tov, or Shabbat. Tikiatot, which are special piyutim for Rosh Hashanah. He wrote Sidrei Havodah, he wrote many of them, for Yom Kippur. And finally, what's exciting tonight, which because we're about to approach, approach Shavuot, is that he wrote Azharot, which we're going to discuss in a minute. In addition, he wrote some Rahitim and Tochachot, which are specific types of piyutim, and added them and sometimes embellished other pre-existing piyutim. So he would take, sometimes he would only embellish other forms of piyutim, and he would add a poem here or a poem there, and we know that he wrote many different types of piyutim that were neglected earlier. He filled the void of the earlier, of the earlier poetic, uh, poets. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes he would write poems which were not really uh, religious in nature. He would write poems that weren't strictly secular, but weren't strictly religious either. For example, he once wrote a polemic against the Karaim, and the entire polemic is written in a very, a very difficult poetic form, basically to show, to demonstrate his uh, academic abilities. And another time he wrote a mnemonic for a, a, a poem, which is basically a poem which is so difficult to understand that he wrote a pirush on his own poem. It's a poem which lists how many letters there are in the Torah for each letter. And then he, he writes a line of poetry and then explains to you what the words mean. And it's, it's clearly some form of a mnemonic poem. And then he explains to you what the words mean and how the words altogether add up to the gematria of that he was that that he was trying to get to, which is incredibly impressive, but also very difficult to call that standard to, to call that standard poetry. If anyone's interested, some of them are printed in in um, in his sidur. Okay, but moving forward, the greatest collection of his poets were were collected by Yosef Tobi in a book called Piyuteir of Sadiagaon Mahadurat Madait Shaliyosrot. You can find this book uh, in, in academic libraries, but nowhere else really. So if anybody wants to see, his greatest collection of Putin that he wrote was really Yotzrot. As we discussed earlier, this is the late Oriental period, and his greatest collection was the Yotzrot, for which he wrote a Yotzer for almost every single Shabbat. And these were collected into a, a, a manuscript, into many manuscripts, which were found in the Cairo Geniza, and as well as other places, and were collected into one edition uh, by Yosef Tobi in the 1980s. So... Sometimes these poems can, the, the Yotzrot are a little bit better, uh, but, and they typically follow styles of the early Calyrian um, poets, but he adds some innovations, right? In the, in the Yotzrot, he's not like writing riddles. In the Yotzrot, he has his own form of piyutim, which stood out from the Calyrian style poetry before him. First of all, he lends a philosophical lean to many of his poems, adding in philosophical themes that were never that never existed in the highly midrashic poems of the of of, of Abilazar Baby Kalir, as we've discussed earlier. Furthermore, his rhymes get much more sophisticated. He'll have A B A B rhymes, A A A B uh, C C C C B, like various rhymes which which get more and more complex. Although the, the he does not yet have meter, which comes to Jewish poetry later, borrowed from the Arabs, he does have much more sophisticated rhyme systems. He typically has less allusions to Debre Chazal and more allusions to Pesukim, unlike the, 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 the poets before him. 
he has a new way of using Lashon HaKodesh where he this is grammatically complicated to explain, but sometimes he'll, he'll use uh, feminine in the sense of, of, of masculine and masculine in the sense of feminine. He'll add letters and use, and instead of lidogeg or instead of lidoeg, he has his own system for assigning what he considers proper Lashon HaKodesh or proper poetic Lashon HaKodesh to his piyutim. And finally, and I think this is the most important addition that he added to poetry, was that his poetry was very often written in the personal and not in the collective. Up until his time, the one Python puts it this one sorry, one scholar of Pia puts it this way. He says in the classical period, when they when when the Pythonim wrote poems or Piyutim, liturgical poems, the voice of the poem was always the people of Israel and Hashem, right? The people of Klai Israel to Hashem. Klai Israel is speaking to Hashem. When the Spanish poets, much later, write poetry, they write from the nefesh to Hashem, from the soul and God. Not the collective beseeching Hashem, but the soul of the person beseeching Hashem. Sadia Gaon was the bridge. He was the one who began writing both collective poems, poetry which spoke on behalf of Klai Israel, but also very personal poems, poems which, which uh, approached Hashem as, an, as a personal or as an individual person coming to besiege Hashem, not as the collective. And this was a revolution which took, uh, which not a revol- not just a revolution, but an innovation which was co- which was developed and borrowed or stolen by the poets of Spain, who, as we're going to see later, blossomed this into a fully formed, uh, beautiful body of poetry, uh, unlike the world has ever seen. So the first, uh, we're, I'm going to have to mention a few of his types of, of piyutim, just to, just to, to um, let's make this, I guess, to make the class a little bit well-rounded. The first tefillah that I want to mention that he wrote is not even a poem. You see, Rabbi Sadia Gaon had two ways of writing. One way was to write in strict poetry. Another way to write was in his actual tefillah form. And he would write a poetic prose that was much more a bakasha and much more a tefillah than it was than it was a poem at all. And Rabbi Sadia Gaon wrote a tefillah hashachar, so to speak, a morning prayer, <coughs> which became extremely, extremely popular. And he writes in the introduction to this morning prayer, and I'm just going to read to you here from his sidur. He says that... Uh, where is it here? Sorry if I can't find it right here. Mm. He he wanted to write a prayer which could appeal to people if they wanted to pray uh, more than one time a day. Right? Some people, we, we have the monotonous three-time-a-day prayers, and he says, what is a person going, going to do if he wants to pray another time to Hashem during the day? So he says, for this purpose, instead of a person reciting Shmon Esrei again, which is, uh, you know, halachically permitted for a person to do a tefillat nedava, instead, I will write a tefillah. And he wrote two tefillot, the bakasha hakala and the bakasha hakashe. One besiegement is lighter in tone. This is like not uh, asking supplication or repentance for Shabbat's sake, if you were going to read it on Shabbat or Yom Tov. The other is called the bakasha hakashe, which has more uh, vidois and it has more tochacha, and a little bit more introspective, which could be appropriately read during the weekday. And Sadia Gaon's bakashot are so, so beautiful and so personal 
that they became immediately extremely popular. And in the Yeshivot in Bavel, they read this for generations around congregations all around Kla Yisrael. It almost became normative. This was a, a morning addition to the to the to, to Shachrit, which almost became normative in the Sidur. So much so that a She'elah was sent to the Rambam. Two, 300 years later, they sent a question to the Rambam asking, "Are we? Do we have to stand during the Tefillah of Sadia Gaon, and are we allowed to say Kaddish after it?" Which the Rambam politely said, "No, you're not required, and no, you don't have to stand." But the beauty of these Tefillot is really unmistakable, and I, I could just read to you here the beginning. The Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra praises this tefillah for not having any of the four flaws that he saw in Rabbi Lezer Berbi Kalir's poetry, which we discussed last week. But let me just read to you the first bakasha, for example. It goes on for many pages, so I won't do all of it. But you could hear in it the beautiful, beautiful tone. very, very beautiful poem. It was originally, as far as I can see, written in Arabic. I'm not sure if he wrote both the Arabic and the Hebrew. Um, I, I, most likely he wrote both because the, the Hebrew is very much, very, very well preserved in many later editions. There, there's a study of how many congregations added their own. Landshut did a study of this about how many congregations borrowed it and added it and changed it. But the Mekitzinir Damim Foundation tried to preserve the most original form. If you open a some sidurim, will have it. If you look, if you look into some of the better sidurim, look for this, the the Tfilot of Sadia Gaon. And if you have time, it's really, really worth a read. Uh, the Sefer uh, Otsar uh, Tfilot definitely has it. And uh, in case anyone's interested, many Sidurim also include this very, very beautiful um, tefillah. We're going to speak about in a second uh, the, the, another person who also wrote these types of, these types of tefillot. Now, the other tefillah which he's very famous for is the Azharot. So we're approaching Shavuot in only a couple of days, and it's important to know what the Azharot are. Azharot, which really means like, uh, you know, warnings or... I don't know a better way to say that in English, but uh, I'm sure there's a legal term. The Azharot are a form of Shivata. Originally, the, there was a form of piyut called a Shivata, which is seven poems for the seven blessings Shemona Esrei of Yom Tov. And this Shivata was written for the Musaf of Shavuot. So originally, when someone would write an Azara, it was a poem which was going to be programmed into the Shivata of Musaf of Shavuot. The earliest Azhara that we know of is called Atain Chalta. It's from an unknown author from the classical period. By Sadia Gaon's time, he read, it was already a well-known piyut, so clearly Azharot were a developed form by his time. But Sadia Gaon saw that many of the, of the Azharot up to his time omitted or added mitzvot that he didn't believe were misfot. And to explain, I'm sorry I didn't explain, the Azharot are a form of piyut which should enumerate all 613 mitzvot. Usually into sections, they, they enumerate all the 613 mitzvot. Later you find your B'liel HaZakein writing one, you find the Gabirol writing one. Very famous Azharot were written throughout the generations. Sadia Gaon took, uh, you know, it, took his own 
a hand and wrote a azhara, which is very, honestly, very difficult in style. He begins every, I think it's in page Kufun and Zion. Let me just open it for you here. In the, in the Sefer, in the Cedar of Sadiagon, which you can find in Hebrew books, in page Kufun and Zion. The first word of every strophe is from, is from, is from the Perek Tilim Samachet. The last word of every strophe has to be from Shir Shirim Perek Aleph. And in the middle word, I don't remember what it begins with, but basically, um, maybe it's also from Shir Shirim. He uses a very strict artificial system, but then he writes a very long piyut or azharot to enumerate his listing of all 613 uh, of the mitzvot. So I'll just give you an example for the uh, for the how it how it goes. Begins et Hashem tira Right, litotafot alluding to the tefillin. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting four-part strophe, and it's very, very long. But his azarot were well-known. They were said by many people for... Sorry, I just have to pause for a second because I'm getting dizzy. I guess it's the heat in here. They were said for a very long while. It is a well-known azarot. But later, the Franco-Germans... Uh, adopted the Azarot of Eliyahu Zakain, and later the Spanish uh, were far more into the, the Azarot of the later of the later poets. So, it's a good example for one who wants to see some of Sadegon's productivity and to see how he could use a superficial or sorry, not superficial, an artificial constraint in his poetry. The Azarot are a good place to start. I wanted to mention. I said his biggest uh, collection or ouvre would be his Yotzrot. So now, just quickly, because I know no one's reading this inside, in, in his Siddur page, Shuf Shin Pei Bet, you'll see some of his, uh, some of his um, Yotzrot. For example, we have an alphabeta here, which is his Yotzer. We have another one here, which is an Ofan. And there's an interesting feature, which is very difficult to explain, in his Azarot and his Yotzrot. So... Almost all of his Yotzrot will end by him signing the name Shlomo or Shlomo Suleiman. We have no idea why. His Azarot, he signs with the name acrostic David and Alazar, and we have no idea why. So some scholars suggested that perhaps he wrote it in honor of somebody, or he's listing the Chazanim, who he considered the worthy Chazanim or the right Chazanim who were supposed to sing this Azara or this Piyut. It's like he was signing every Yotzer with the name of the cantor. Or he was commissioned or paid for by a certain person or he was honoring a certain person named Shlomo. But it's a big mystery as to why he would sign the name of his Yotzerot with somebody else's name, not the name Saadia, which is very confusing. And many Piyutim and the Kairoganiza were confused for the Piyutim of somebody else because they would end with a name acrostic, Shlomo Suleiman, and nobody had any idea that they belonged to Sadiaga on for a very long time. So it's a very strange thing. But let me just read to you, for example, one of his, uh, uh, his Zulat. It's like, Tachat shamanu shidadunu v'holichunu bagolat sarim. You see a very particular way of using the Hebrew language by saying, shidadunu v'holichunu. Aruchi chubla ki... 
Kol birama nishma nehi bechi tamrurim. Oi na lanu, oi me'avar alenu, oi kinafla teret roshenu. Very, very interesting style. And that's actually a, 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 a reverse acrostic, that, that piute. Okay, so that's so much for the... Let's see here. Okay, so that's so much, I believe, for the moment that we're going to see from the poems of Ersadia Gaon. His influence is very much, very much attributed. This is, this is very much debated, to be honest. And I, just to, to give you an idea, th- there's many different scholars of Piyot have different opinions about how much did Rafsadia Gaon's poetry influence later, later, po- later poets. On the one hand, not at all, because nobody wanted to write poetry like that. A lot of his proper poems were just not really as nice as the poetry of other, po- of other poets, and therefore never became popular. And many of his riddlic, uh, riddle-type uh, poetry and his, and, his, and his Hebrew styles just wasn't copied by later authors. However, his philosophical styles and his um, allusions to Pesukim and some of his, his ways of, of, of describing Klai Yisrael by using different names from Tanakh, different, different new innovations that he introduced into the poetry was adopted by other poets. So I just wanted to read to you something from Yerachmiel Brody, the way he describes it. He says, as concerns content, Rabbi Sadia deserves much credit for introducing philosophical and personal dimensions to certain genres of piyut. Uh, particularly Bakashot, etc. From a structural perspective, his influence in these genres was considerable. Some of his other compositions were widely imitated and had an important impact, particularly his Sidre Avodah and the Azarot. The, the style that in which he structured his Sidre Avodah and the Azarot, in other words, was widely imitated later. But a few of his innovations in the areas of rhyme and structure, uh, sorry, of his rhyme and structure took root, but perhaps the most profound impact of his poetics was in, undermine, is, was in the undermining of long-held conventions and the layings of a groundwork for future experimentation and, and innovation. From this point of view, the implications of dispensing with rhyme and his tochacha were as far-reaching as the convoluted, convoluted structure of Esam Eshali, which is his, his beaut for the, uh, for the, for the uh, Karaim. So what he's saying is that even though he might have not had direct influence on every poet that came after him. His, his, um, his introduction of experimenting and innovating and adding new styles and adding new features was did give a tremendous, tremendous inspiration to the other late Oriental poets, which eventually laid the groundwork for additional innovation in Spain later. Okay, so we, we've already gone, I think we're, we spent a lot of time in this. I'm just going just gonna to briefly uh, mention two of his other people who were inspired by Sadia Gaon, or three. Uh, Rabbeinu Nisim ben Barachi al-Narawani was one of the Hashuvim in the, in the yeshiva in Bavel. And either Sadia was influenced by him or Rabbeinu Nisim was influenced by Sadia. Because this Rabbeinu Nisim is the famous Rabbeinu Nisim that the Sfaradim, all the, all the, the Sfaradi Jews will know as writing the famous Vidoy de Rabbeinu Nisim. If you open up a, a, a Mahsar, very often it'll say Vidoy de Rabbeinu Nisim, but it, it'll sometimes say Rabbeinu Nisim Gaon, and that confuses him with somebody who lived two, three hundred years later. This Vidoy was written by Rabbeinu Nisim, and it begins with Right? Beautiful, beautiful vidoy from Rabbeinu Nisim Gaon. And this is very much in the style of the tefillah 
Avrav Sadia Gaon. So it seems that they were contemporaries in this very, very beautiful style of writing tefillah. So Rabbeinu Nisim was a contemporary who wrote a very similar tefillah to Rav Sadia Gaon. The next person we know who was definitely influenced by Rav Sadia Gaon the most was probably Rabbi Shmuel Berbi Hoshana. Rabbi Shmuel Berbi Hoshana, who lived in Eretz Yisrael, wrote eight piyut long yotzeres for every Shabbat of the year, just like of Sadia Gaon. He, some, but he, his style is a little bit uh, more advanced. He would quote Midrashim verbatim at times. There's, a, there's an entire work on, on his piyutim, which were found in full on the Karaganiza by Yosef Yehalom. And if we need to come back to Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Shohoshana, we will. Uh, finally, Rabbi Shlomo Suleiman al-Sanjari, who lived in the 9th and 10th centuries, also took major influence from Sadia Gaon. He had a very similar style. He would take a lot of the structures from Sadia Gaon, and therefore, hopefully, I, I hope that this class will give us some sort of groundwork for understanding late Oriental piyut. Again, just to recap, this is an era of uh, where Sadia Gaon introduced the courage to innovate and to add new elements and to fill the lacuna, fill the, the, the really the void that was left by the classical Paitanim by respecting the earlier tradition. However, adding uh, Piyutim in areas which weren't served earlier, adding new ideas in the Piyutim, adding new structures, adding fancier forms of rhyme, and most importantly, in my opinion, was giving a voice to the personal, giving a voice to the individual in his Piyutim and making poetry something much more uh, personal, making poetry something, the, the piyut, something personal that people can read and directly personally be inspired by and personally recite on their own time. So that was the, the great innovation of Sadia Gaon. He championed, I, believe, I can't say championed Yotzer, but he was one of the greatest writers of Yotzerot and Piyutim in the late Oriental period. His style was not imitate, was not was not the popular one. The most popular Yotzrot were written later by Shimon Bar Yitzchak and many others. And most of the Piyutim of his, of his, of his own right and, and most of the Piyutim of even those who, were, who uh, copied of Sadia Gaon have gone extinct. They, they were said uh, a lot a thousand years ago, but they, they appear last in Machsorim from four and five hundred years ago. This is the last time we see any mention of the Piyutim of the style of Sadia Gaon or those who were influenced by him. So that, that so much is the story of Sadia Gaon as a personality. I hoped to use his, uh, the intention of tonight's year was to use his life story and his poetry as a marker for the late Oriental period. And hopefully we'll discuss more of this period soon. And Bezat Hashem, we will continue next week um, if we are able to in a Suchag. So I'll let everybody know if we're, if we're going to be... Uh, be meeting then. But thank you everybody for your patience, your endurance, and we'll continue next week.